Evolutionary Podcast coming your way, episode 563. Today's going to be a fun one, guys. We're going to talk about steroid use started earlier than you think. So we're going to bring in Mobster on this one to start us off. Mobster, what do you mean by this topic? Uh, tell us tell us your thoughts on this topic so far. Right. So, so Steve, a lot of the time, we talk about the creation of steroids when they were creating, and, we, and we're typically talking about the quite well-known ones. And then when that subject comes up, obviously we're thinking about medical use at that time. That's what steroids were created for. There's, I think with one or two possible exceptions, Steve, Tyranavol springs to mind, uh, almost no steroid was created for performance enhancement. So then we get into the whole golden era, silver era of bodybuilding, weightlifting, powerlifting, whatever you want to call it, the iron sport, we should call it. And so many conversations are based around the idea that, okay, you know, we, we think some of the bodybuilders were using drugs in the 60s to enhance their performance. We think, uh, you know, the golden age of bodybuilding, 1970, when they are only using a little bit of Debo and a little bit of Primo, but it, it's, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's simple. It's 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 that might be arguably when such use became popularized, or the information started to creep out into our consciousness, into the magazines. Some of the magazines didn't know what to do with it, Steve, so they would write about steroid articles, and then of course there was a back and forth. So what you also get, and the media love to do this as well. They talk about natties and who's natural and such and such a professional bodybuilder or, or Mr. Universe or Mr. America winner. There's no way he was taking drugs. Look at their amazing physiques. Right. So let's, let's, let's get the dust out of everybody's eyes. I've referred to in previous podcasts, how ancient athletes all the way back to Rome and Greece. And even before Steve, were looking for an edge. I've said that there are arguments, literally translations of arguments in ancient Greek where they're discussing the merits or the lack thereof of one athlete running barefoot versus another athlete wearing sandals. In other words, the sandal guy was cheating. The sandal guy was looking for an edge. It's much more uh, traditional to run barefoot. If that was the case, we'd still be running barefoot now. So arguments more recently, I'm thinking back to when I was a young man, was the difference between having a 10,000 pair of running shoes versus a $500 pair of running shoes. So $10,000, $500, one weighing a pound and the other one weighing 100 grams or 200 grams. It mean made out of some fine mesh. We could go back to the ancient times again and find athletes discussing whether they should eat heart or bull's testicles. And of course, bull's testicles, quote unquote, the virility of the animal. So the idea is that 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 that, that Silver era, which would be the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, Steve, bodybuilders, never mind that. You're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of years that athletes have looked for an edge. So let me go forward a little bit in time, just the Victorian times. In Victorian times, they were using speed. They were using amphetamine sulfate, former speed. They were using other stimulants. One of the great ones, and I mentioned this in another podcast, was a, a Coke as in the coke that people sniff on a Saturday night in nightclubs, infused wine that was recommended had the approval of two popes. So what did we see at those times that athletes were doing, but also what we see is gentlemen bets, such a such a person who's got a guinea or 100 guineas or whatever, gold coins that says, I can walk to Newcastle in three days. I can walk 
from Chicago to this city in four days and so on and so forth. And it'd be some amazing distance. It'd be like 100 or 200 miles, Steve. So they were essentially taking stimulants for a bet to walk as many hours as they possibly can while they were high. You've got athletes, including ancient, I say ancient, early 1900s strongmen, I'm thinking of the Saxon brothers and others, that were drinking beer during a workout. Now, admittedly, the beer was relatively weak, 3%, 4% alcohol, but it's, and it's a great source of carbohydrates. But we, you and I have talked about how, if we're going to use steroids, if we want to get our absolute best, we shouldn't be going out partying at weekends. These guys were, for want of a better phrase, Steve, partying during a workout. So you've got this idea. You can just basically throw the, 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 the baby out with the bathwater. It's the whole premise that guys were, you, were, were natural or it was a sort of more honest time is bullshit. Reality is athletes will always look for an edge, even if it's just training better, harder, more consistently, more frequently, uh, with more weights or whatever than, than the other guy in order to kick his ass. Now, I'm going to get into the specifics of this. Just give me a moment. Right. So, for example, guys, uh, let me have a look here. There were adverts in 1936 issues of health and strength for a product called Hormonex. Now, Hormonex was not a steroid. But if you read the advert, and I've, I've seen the advert, and I've got very early issues of certain magazines, Steve. These, these, these things were done. They talked about men's virility, men's vitality. In other words, the same premise, the idea of this particular product, which is often as not was actually just organ meats dried and ground down, was supposed to give you the same essence, like the bull's testicles that the ancient Romans and the Greeks were eating, that we now think we get from, and we know that we get from, steroids. So in other words, they didn't have steroids available, although they were coming in around that time, but there were products promoting the idea of steroid-like results, same as we see in modern bodybuilding magazines now. Give me another one. I'm looking here, Steve. Uh, da, 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 da. Right, so products like one called here Testy Fortan to treat impotency in 1924. Again, this one was an extract from animals' testicles. But what does it sound like? It sounds like CRT. So this is what the bodybuilders and athletes of those times were doing. I can even find, if I just have a little look here, well, I'm referring to these articles. I believe SIBA, Adverts for Story, aims at athletes in 1947. So it's about 10 to 15 years before we like to think of consistent bodybuilding steroid use beginning around that time. So literally they had adverts and have specifically cited the idea that this particular product could benefit athletes. Now that changed very quickly. The, the early versions of FDA and, and the US government said you can't do that. UK government would be the same. And so this was probably on the internal stuff and also the stuff that was being sent out to doctors and researchers. So it wasn't necessarily published as such, although I have seen very early adverts. There's another one, Steve. 1936 advert for test prop or test propionate with FDA reference dated 1939. So in other words, that's when the FDA saw it and put their number on it versus the time that the advert had actually appeared. So this is like 1936. So if we're talking about the mid-50s and 60s, it's 20 years before people think 
uh, steroid use become prevalent that it was a it was a big big deal. I could go into other details. And a great example, and I'm going to talk about this, but right particularly now, uh, was John Grimek. Now John Grimek would be arguably an absolutely amazing bodybuilder, and 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 was no doubt about it. Uh, a fantastic poser. Never had a six pack, Steve, but was always able to present himself in such a way on stage, and I'm including when he's gone up against Steve Reeves back in the day, that he would win. And in, in addition to which, he was a capable weightlifter. So not only did he have this amazing physique, he was also able to demonstrate that strength. And here, I've got stuff here, Steve, right? Let me get you this one. September of 1947, on a strength and health letterhead, strength and health was one of uh, Bob Hoffman's magazines, the other one being muscular development back in the day, writing to Dr. Ziegler, who had the copy of this, which was given to John D. Vere, and then later on used by Golden Era Bookworm in his Silver Era YouTube video. And the letter is dated January 1943. I want to talk about that, Steve, but also I want to get your input on other sports using steroids in the early days. And I'm thinking specifically of baseball, and I'll refer to that in a minute. What do you think? Look, at the end of the day, there's been so many different... I mean, obviously we can't prove anything, but there's been so much passed around information. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Olympics, obviously, you know, we know that they were trying to give up. Uh, uh, they were trying to get a leg up on each other, um, especially the Russians versus Americans, uh, the British versus the French, all these little rivalries that they started getting going. And we know you, you mentioned John Ziegler with, with Diana Bowl. He wanted to create something that didn't require any injection. So that's why that he brought Diana Ball into the Olympics for the Americans. So they wouldn't have to carry around syringes and pin themselves and, and, and do that. It was very, very taboo to, to do something like that. So Diana Ball, they could just pop a Diana Ball, 10 milligram Diana Ball, 20 mil, 20 milligram Diana Ball, and it would give them the same Similar, similar effects to to take injecting testosterone, but like you said, they've been they've been messing around with hormones for a long time. It's really amazing over the past hundred years how little progress we've made when it comes to hormones and how much progress we've made in other areas of medicine. But a big reason for that is because they, you know, hormones and and playing around with hormones and messing around with the atoms and stuff. That's a lot more simpler when it comes to. Um, you know, when it comes to researching uh, hormones and the testosterone, the testosterone molecule and, and the derivatives of testosterone, the derivatives of the dihydrotestosterone and the way they kind of tinker around with these hormones. And really, they've kind of tinkered around with these hormones so much that there's really not much to tinker with them anymore um, at this point. So that's kind of why we've kind of not made progress. You've got They've come up with every type of anabolic steroid to do everything different to the point where now it's unnecessary. They even came up with, with steroids that weren't detectable in tests, and that had to do with the whole Balco scandal. Well, that blew up in their face because yeah. obviously people run their mouth, and people ran their mouth enough where it got a lot of people busted for it. And, and some people got in big trouble for it, and some people got very embarrassed by it. So that was a dumb idea. But at the end of the day, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers were extremely dominant, especially from 
you know, the, the 74, 75 season, all the way to the 78, 79, they won four Super Bowls during that era. And they were extremely dominant at the line of scrimmage. Every play, they were pushing you back three, four yards. Every play they were faster than you. They were stronger than you. They had more endurance than you. And now looking back, we know that they were passing around anabolic steroids um, amongst each other. And that was one of the reasons they were able to get an advantage over their opponents and be so dominant during the mid mid to late seventies and win four Super Bowls, which is an incredible feat to, to win four Super Bowls like that. So we've been trying, as Monster said, to get an advantage on each other when it comes to fitness. Uh, I don't care if you are a normal Joe in the gym. I don't care if you're a professional bodybuilder going to Mr. Olympia. There's always going to be a want to give yourself an advantage and make yourself more able to do what you want to accomplish and shorten the time it takes you to get there or give you an advantage over yourself from yesterday being able to take something today. So when Mobster and I, we use anabolic steroids, you know, over time, our goals have changed. Mobster and I have been competitors in different things. Yes. We wanted to use them for that. But now, you know, we want to use them to give us a little bit of an edge to push us a little bit so that we can have, you know, better results in our body. So as long as humans are going to be around, it's always going to be wanting to do that. But it is kind of sad that we've got to the point when it comes to these hormones that there's really not much to do anymore when it comes to using them. So now you have to kind of depend on your genetics. You have to depend on diet, nutrition, all this other stuff to give you an edge now, because if you're all, and your ability to tolerate anabolic steroids is important too. I I have some clients, you put them on 150 milligrams of testosterone a week, they get gynecomastia symptoms right away. Even with an AI, they're so damn sensitive to it. And you have other guys, they can run two grams of testosterone and not have any gynecomastia or not have any bloating or nothing. So your ability to tolerate these anabolic steroids is extremely important as well. So you got to factor that in over time as well. And I think that's what we've realized today versus the 50s and 60s when they first we're really getting into using anabolic steroids for, for performance. Yeah, yeah. Let me jump back then, in for a second here. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so, for example, what's one of the things that Steve said earlier on was about how there's not really any new steroids about as such. And in fact, I've I've done some research in the past. I've actually brought off of Amazon. I've got a book upstairs that tells you how to make steroids. It's all with the stuff that's information in the patents for the original drugs. And one of the things Steve said in regards to that, as I just just said already. It's this idea that there are no new steroids. So basically, there are or was, I think off the top of my head, about 100, Steve, something ridiculous. But what ended up happening, of course, guys, was, right, some of those steroids were so similar to something else, or the other version was just good old-fashioned better. As in a great example would be the pro-hormone debacle of some years ago, Steve, as you know. And these a lot of pro hormones were essentially steroids that just didn't end up making it to market, or if they did, they were withdrawn and something else replaced it, which was better. And you know, you talk about Debo and Anavar and Trend and so on and so forth. There will be a bunch of other drugs that was one ester or one, but one carbon molecule different, and perhaps it had exactly the same positive effects, but a more negative side effects. So, they, so why would we do that when I've got something else that's milder? 
that gives you the same amount of strength and the same amount of muscle. So, yeah, 100% in that particular regard, Steve. And again, as Steve says, what are you looking at now? If we've all got the same accessibility, then it's the other things. Now, as an example, and I'm a big fan in a, in, in a small way, I guess, of peptides. And peptides, again, with regards to underground labs, et cetera, and approved sources are way more available now than they've ever been. But they are rarely as anabolic, for example, or give you as good a response as a lot of steroids. What they are, of course, like SARMs, is that they do specific things. They're like a small tool in a big toolbox versus the big tools. Sometimes you need something else just to give you an edge. So what are we looking at with athletes? And we're actually going to touch on this in another podcast in the not-too-distant future, when we talk about the things that athletes are doing outside the workout, outside of the game. And that's actually come full circle. Everybody's got accessibility to drugs. He didn't have that accessibility back in the day, and I'll touch on that momentarily. But everybody, arguably, can get hold of steroids now. Everybody, arguably, can get hold of uh, SARMs or peptides. So then you start looking for the edge. Are you doing all the rehab and all the physio and all the recovery work that you should be doing? Are you tra- overtraining? And perhaps you should have rest. Are you working with a sports-specific coach, a strength and conditioning coach who can give you something? Are you talking to the other professionals and picking their brains and getting the same advantages, little tweaks that they've done that you can have? So if you go back in the day, and this is a good example of actually a, 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 a positive, if you like, pr- proving that uh, 1940s and 1950s bodybuilders and iron game athletes weren't quite getting an edge, some of the steroids that they had excess at that time have an incredibly short half-life, as in the case of ours. So, so where we talk about longer esters, given a longer method of action, and over time, perhaps arguably a more positive result, certainly in terms of not having a pin two or three times a day, for example, Steve, or at multiple, multiple times per week, i.e. 20 or times a week. And this is what was available. So some of the early steroids that athletes and users of performance enhancing drugs were able to get off back in the day with super quick acting. Now, again, this was great in medical circumstances to treat a medical condition, especially if you're about to do surgery or you've got other drugs in the mix, but it wasn't necessarily a great thing for bodybuilders and iron game athletes. So there's that back and forth with accessibility. Let me give an example. And I was talking about Major League Basketball baseball back in the day, and I'm talk- I think this was 1930s, 1940, Steve. I didn't put a date against this one. Pud Galvin, who was a Major League baseball player, used something called the Dr. Brown Seagod Elixir. That is actually, if you if you Google the Elixir name, you'll come up with a bunch of stuff. Basically, it was an essence of testicle. And this major, I think it was around the 1930s, was injecting this Elixir, this, this testicular com- combination in, in injectable form into his body, looking for an edge. So here's the thing, and I, me and Steve have touched on this before, right? whether it's the football team that Steve referred to or this major league basketball baseball player, should I say, back in the day. I, I, you, and, and I'll use the ancient Greek, ancient Roman reference as well. So if I've come from a relatively poor, hard scrabble type background, I might not have been super poor, but it's not been easy get into college. It's not been easy to get into university. My mum and dad have had to scrape money together. The family's had to help out. And suddenly there's a, there's a chance for me in ancient Greece, it was literally, you know, you, you go into town and the village would give you food. The greengrocer or the, the equivalent greengrocer would give you food. The equivalent which would give you food. They would help you with a house. 
and you went off to represent your city. And that could be the same in Major League Baseball back in the day. Literally, you come from out in the middle of nowhere. You're at, you live in the forest. Or you're, you know, it's the depression. And there's a chance for you now to double or triple a normal wage by playing Major League Baseball. Never mind the kind of numbers that everybody's getting now at top athletes. Just back in the day, in the middle of the depression, I'm going to be giving you the equivalent of $100 a week when the average man was on $30 for argument's sake. You're going to take it. You're going to want to do it. That gives you the chance to put money back to the family while you're working. Now, to stay and be picked repeatedly for the team that's playing, to be put out there as the first player, the second player, the third player, not on the reserves, not back in the changing room, not back with the practice teams, but being playing every single game. And if you hit the ball out of the park, you're getting bonuses. If you go into town, everybody's buying you a beer, that kind of vibe. There's a huge impetus, a, a drive for that athlete to perform. In ancient Greece, for example, if you performed badly in the Olympic Games, some athletes didn't go back. They literally did not return to town. They would be ostracized. People wouldn't talk to them for weeks, if not months, if not longer, Steve. People would hate them. You represented, you let us down. You said you was going to kick ass. You said you was going to come back with the equivalent of a medal. Don't come back to town if you lose. So the, these baseball players, pro ball players, soccer players, whatever, your, your chance now, Steve, would be for a career, which might only be 10 years long, but $30, $40 million a year. That is life-altering. That is generational life-altering kind of money. That means your family, you, your kids and your grandkids and their children and their children are going to get access to that money at some point. It's going to pay for college funds. It's going to do whatever because of you. Tell me that there's not a drive, whether it's ancient Greece, 1930s athletes, or the modern athlete, to do something to stay in the game. Now, whether that's a fantastic recovery and rehab, whether that's practicing all hours, as me and you talked about with some fantastic athletes, all hours of the day or night. But equally, it's getting therapy. And sometimes that therapy is drug-related, whether it's cortisone, whether it's anabolic steroids, medically prescribed, or whether it's talking to a buddy in the changing room and getting a stack of D-bowl. The drive for athletes to perform at the highest level for limited periods of time, let's be honest, Steve, as you can name, I know because I know you've done it, you can name the athletes that have been able to have long careers in sports where normally the career is 10 years long, if they are lucky. Talk about that, why athletes' mentality is that way and how rare it is to see an athlete last 20 or 30 years, for example, in American football. Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, how many times you see guys, they have a major injury and they don't come back from it, but you'll have another guy have a major injury and come back the next year to have an even better year, have a career year. So some people are just freaks. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, you have to have both the mental and physical freakish ability to, to come back from something like that and not give up. The uh, the physical therapy has to be really, you know, grueling and it has to suck. I mean, who wants to go into physical therapy every day? A lot of these PT places, they'll hire like gorgeous women. You know, they'll hire a gorgeous secretary up front. They'll hire some gorgeous train, you know, physical therapists. And that kind of gets you motivated to go in. But it sucks having to do physical therapy. I've been there, done that. Um, and it, it sucks. It's just boring as fuck. Like I'm going in there for an hour doing physical therapy and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing in here? I could be at the gym 
for an hour. I could be at the beach. I could be doing something so, so much more fun. But physical therapy is just grueling. And um, when they have a major injury, Achilles injury, ACL tear, uh, shoulder tear, these major injuries that guys get in American football, it really, really sucks. And having to come back, you've got to be able to, to you just have to have that mental strength to be able to go through that. And then, you know, you're coming into the next season and you've got guys trying to take your job, younger guys trying to take your job who are very, very hungry and you have to stay hungry. You have to stay committed and you have to train your balls off and you have to get in there and, you know, get your job back that someone else has took the year before because you were injured the whole year, you know? So that just gives you more of an incentive to mess around with these hormones, growth hormone, very, very, very plausible that a lot of these guys that are able to come back from those injuries they're taking growth hormone. It was it was rumored Adrian Peterson Absolutely. when he tore his ACL, devastating yeah. injury. In years past, guys have never come back from that. We're talking about running back here. You know, he came back the next year and set a record over two thousand yards rushing. He went from two twelve hundred some yards to over two thousand yards. He almost doubled his yards. How how is that possible after coming off an ACL injury? It just doesn't make any sense. But it just shows you what they do. They're going to do what necessary to to win and come back. And uh, he was the same guy, mobster, who um, he hit his son with a with a twig. He he used right. to you know hit his son as discipline with a twig, and he got in trouble for that. Um, some type of stick. He would discipline his son, and he actually ended up hurting his son. His son had to go to the hospital or something. But it makes you wonder their upbringing, you know, what their what his father used to do to him when he was younger to yeah. give him that mentality. And it's a sick, sick, sick mentality, by the way, because you should never abuse your children. But it just shows you what they what they went through uh, growing up. And, um, you know, you hear some of these stories of, of uh, guys when they were playing sports and they mess up and their dad will actually get the belt. Yeah, yeah. And hit him like, oh, you, you threw an interception, you're going to get a belt. Every interception you, you hit, um, it's 10 whacks with the belt. So I don't know if you grew up that way, mobster over there in England. I don't know how you guys are, are raised, but um, I, some people I, are I, like I, that. I, I, my, my dad never hit me. My dad was like the, uh, the ultimate weapon. My mom would threaten us with that dad. We'd take a whipping, so to speak, off of off my mother, uh, four boys, including me. Uh, but dad was like, if she wasn't getting it anywhere else, but dad was like the nuclear bomb, right? I'm gonna have to tell your dad that you're kicking ass. I, I never take a, 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 anything off my father. In fact, I've, I've actually had to restrain my dad once or twice, but that was when I was into training. But I think the thing is, and this, I don't think it's necessarily the whipping and the bad upbringing or whatever else. The reality is, and this is what we're getting at, guys, uh, it, it's very rare to see someone that came from a good, solid background, wealthy, especially Steve driven to perform at the highest level in what we can would consider the, the, the more manly, quote-unquote, sports. So, for example, you'll see wealthy athletes, educated athletes, perhaps playing polo or golf, not always. A lot of young, normal guys play golf. But polo is a great example. Stephen, certain sports like that versus, say, for example, and pro, pro, pro football in this country, American football where you are, is you're much more likely to come from a normal high school 
Uh, you might be a great, great athlete, but your grades are a little bit on, on the cusp. Sometimes uh, they're driven actually to perform better and more likely to get uh, picked because the grades are picked up, that kind of thing. But it's and a great example, Steve, I think the best example would probably be boxing. I can't think of one rich, posh, educated person in boxing that ever made it to the top. So whether it's your dad whipping your ass, as you just described, or just being dirt poor back in the day, or as I said earlier on, literally the whole village wants you to win, and if you don't win, don't come back. The drive, the impetus, the urge to perform at the highest level is super high. Let me change tangent now. So one of the things that's always pissed me off, especially when I first got into training, is the idea of the media, and to a, a lesser degree, the average Joe and how we're perceived, including in ancient times and early 30s and 40s and 50s, and now, Steve, with this idea of if you take drugs, you're cheating. So let me give you a couple of examples. I'm referencing um, uh, Jamie Lewis, a plague of strength, and the thread that is on the forums. You can check that out. Right. So Jamie talks about the original formulas for 7-Up contained lithium, and the original Coca-Cola actually contained coke now we know this it's all out there it's not a secret these were the early virgins what does that mean guys it means that anybody that drank in the back in the day the early seven up or the early coca-cola was on drugs was taking a drug it might have been a very small amount of drug to give the the juice the, the soda a little bit of a kick but it meant that people that were just having a very popular soda not athletes just average Joes, everybody was using a drug-enhanced soft drink. So it's kind of that, it's kind of silly. Um, a great example, again, this is the thing that used to piss me off, Steve. So you're into bodybuilding. You're in the 1980s, in my case, when I first became interested in bodybuilding, when I first lifted weights, when I first started collecting bodybuilding magazines, the tabloid newspapers were worse than the broadsheets. Uh, broadsheet would be a big example like the New York Times or the Times in the United Kingdom, but the tabloids would be a, 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 the, the National Enquirer, say, in, in America, and the Sun over here in the UK. They still both exist, I believe. Talking about drug use in Africa, and the joke was that as often as not, because we're talking about back in the day, guys, 1970s, 1980s, that they would be down the pub drinking and smoking cigarettes and talking shit with their buddies to get the inside scoop. And then they would go out of the pub, go around to the local telephone, this is before mobiles, and call their jobs in, call the, call the article in. So they were taking drugs and smoking drugs and talking about athletes using drugs. So here's the reality. As I say already, guys, the idea that athletes uh, only sort of started to get into steroid use back in the day, uh, in 1950s, 1960s, is bullshit. Athletes have always looked for an edge. And as we said, it's come full circle. So this would be the thought of the day, Steve, and we touched on it earlier. Full circle would be we can all get access to drugs now. We can all have those advantages. The natty or not thing needs to be thrown out. The, the idea that golden era greats, silver era greats weren't using or weren't thinking about using is being disproven. We've got letterheads with their names on to prove it. So the thing comes back full circle. Train your ass off. Eat clean and do as much therapy and rehab as you possibly can, and you'll have the same advantages. I would say we have the same advantages, Steve. If you can afford the therapy, there's no argument. Just sheer 
grit and determination and consistency is going to get you all the way there. That's what we encourage. Please note, we're not doctors and the opinions are ours. It's our view based on our experience and views on the topic. A podcast for informational purposes and entertainment only, the freedom of speech and the First Amendment applies. <laughs>